Welcome back to Speaking of Startups, formerly known as the Charlotte Angel Connection. Today, we're very excited to release our next podcast with Sasha Serkin, the founder and CEO of Wise. As you'll learn, she is a young entrepreneur with an ambitious goal to put eyeglasses into people's hands at a much more affordable price point. Um, she's got a very bright future ahead of her as an entrepreneur and today we get the opportunity to sit down and let her share her story with us of where she's come from and highlight where and how she's going to get to where she wants to get to. So really exciting. Sit down and enjoy today's podcast. Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So it is Friday afternoon. Um, and we're going to have a blast here for the next 50 minutes. So if you don't mind, if you can give us a, um, an elevator ish type pitch on your business. Oh, I never thought you'd ask. So <laughs> I started a company called wise and we are revolutionizing how humans see the world. And we do that by producing and selling a self-correcting glasses kit to create accessible vision care. To walk you through a little bit about why I started it, when I was in about sixth grade, I realized that I couldn't really see the board clearly in school. And my grades started to be affected. And I finally went to my parents and I said, look, I don't think it's me. I just genuinely don't think I can see what my teacher's trying to tell us. Uh, so we were able to book an appointment at the optometrist in about two months. And we went in, I was lucky enough to have health insurance. And then we drove to the closest Costco optical and got a pair of glasses because they had the cheapest frames. And then they were shipped to me in two weeks. So I started to kind of that the idea was planted then because as a child, you're not a very patient person. You start to learn that as you grow. So I'm not ashamed to admit that my my sixth grade self was not a patient woman. Um, so I fast forward, I'm about 14. And then I read an article in the New York Times about the dearth of vision care worldwide. And I thought back to that process of kind of going to the optometrist and getting the frames. And I thought, I'm going to simplify it. So I invented a self-correcting glasses kit that takes you from refractive exam to glasses in a matter of 15 minutes. And you don't have to send anything back to us. It's a one-stop shop and it's easy, convenient. Anybody can use it. And it really, really makes it easy for anybody to have the glasses they need. It's an awesome product. And I love the way you tell the story. I want to kind of cut right there in um, 14. You're how old at 14? Are you, or what grade are you in at, four, at 14? Oh, I think I was. Your ninth grade, right? Your eighth, ninth grade. Yeah. So, eighth, ninth so, grade. so two, two years before that. So when you were 11 or 12, what were you walking around telling people? <laughs> I was walking around and I'd known, I've known for my whole life that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, that I wanted to have my own business, be my own boss and do something that was innovative and different. So I was walking around probably a little bit unnecessarily stressed about what my next business idea would be. 
Yeah. And so I would walk around telling people that I was going to become the CEO of Apple. And I still haven't, you know, I, I still believe that that is a possibility in my future, but I'd like to push that to the back burner and decide to be a CEO of my own company first. Uh-huh. So that's, that's what, that's what my younger self was telling people. And um, I remember drawing on, we had like whiteboards all over my, my mom and dad's house just for like school, just pasted on the fridge or something. And I would write down mind maps in my horrendous handwriting about okay, I have this problem that I face. Like, I don't like having to wait in the carpool line. How am I supposed to fix that? Um, so that's kind of a glimpse into the mindset that I've I've grown up with. And also like my kind of aspirations from a young age was to be at the forefront of an innovative and impactful company like Apple. Yeah. So I'm reading a book right now um, called... Um, I don't, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's John D. Fel- John D. Rockefeller, 38 letters yeah. to my son. Have you read the book? I've heard of it, but I haven't no. read it. So he talks about how, when he was probably similarly aged in sixth grade, he walked around and told people that he wanted to be the richest person in the world. Um, so, and how he made that happen as a result of him saying it, right? So a lot of the letters are how he actually, um, creates it as a result of, um, of constantly saying it. So I love the fact that not only did you say it then, but you also just said that it's not off the table. It's just been postponed Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. I think Tim Cook can hold a, hold the, the fort down for a bit. He's got another, he's got another 10 years or so before you step in and let him know it's time (laughs) it's time to move out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let him, I'll let him reign a little longer. So help us out really quick too. And I don't want to put you in the spot. I I say this because I think you're the most impressive entrepreneur I've run across in quite some time, if not forever. How old are you again as we go through this conversation? So everybody else in the podcast can know. I'm 20 years old. 20 years old. Um, So you're sitting where? I am in an apartment at UNC Chapel Hill where I'm a junior. Yeah. She chose the wrong school, but you, <laughs> it's all right. So you're 15, 14, 15 years old. You come up with the, you knew a little bit about it beforehand. You read the article in the New York times and you dream up this company concept. Um, you're still 14 or 15 years old, right? So you've got high school in front of you. You've got college in front of you. Like, How do you visualize this thing at that stage in your career? I see it as a perfect complement to my education because I I think that I've been unnecessarily stressed out about not having enough time. So when I was younger, I thought I'm already years behind because I didn't start this when I was eight years old. Um, and also, it's important to note that my parents were not are not a high pressure it's not a high pressure family. I've just been like, instead of uh, movies, our parents would make us watch documentaries. Um, And my mom and dad would leave scientific American magazines all over the house and national geographic and just kind of growing up with that, that mindset and attitude that knowledge and ideas are privileged to have. It, it made me, 
accept and welcome and encourage myself to ideate things and not, and like, it wasn't even a consideration of my, of mine to push it to the back of my mind because it's, it's, I knew that I probably didn't want to have strictly an office job, but also I was, I didn't want to close myself off to anything. So with that idea in mind, I saw myself being able to use the resources of the schools that I would attend to my advantage, because I think that there's a lot of power in a diverse team of people with diverse backgrounds, diversity of knowledge and thought. And what better place to find that than high school and university? So as I, it it had been my dream of mine actually since fifth grade. So a grade before sixth grade when I had the idea to attend the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics. And uh, so I applied in this residential program. So it was a boarding school, lasted Mm -hmm. from 11th to 12th grade. And, but they didn't have any business courses. And I still hadn't decided if I wanted to be a STEM major or pursue a medical degree. So I was okay with that, but I, I wanted to expand my horizons a little bit while I could. So I also applied and got into Stanford University Online High School. And there I was able to take a class called the Leadership Course Series with Dr. Jan Keating. And it was the most incredible class that I could have taken. And I was, to give you some context, I was in my dorm room at this public boarding school. I lived in a triple. So it was a lofted bed. The ceilings were very low. And I would took this online class. I was hearing from world-class entrepreneurs. And I was just like, it felt like the room wasn't big enough for how I felt because I felt so inspired and fueled by what I heard in those two hours twice a week that I realized like, I want to try to apply this to everything else that I'm doing. So long story short, at the North Carolina School of Science and Math, I applied to a grant called the Bowman Brockman Endowment for Advanced Entrepreneurship rolls right off the tongue. And I got a $550 seed funding. And William, that was the most exciting email I've ever gotten because I submitted the idea for WISE for that grant. And that was the first time anybody beyond my parents had had said there might be something here. So, and I think that having the willingness to bring my idea with me through my educational career has been instrumental in getting me to where I am today. You're going through the School of Science and Math in Winston, right? Isn't that where it is? is it it's in, in Durham. It's in Durham, it's in Durham. okay. So yeah. you're going through the School of Science and Math in, in Durham and how does the business concept idea mature as you're there? So with that $550, the I, whopping $550, I, right? it, it was the largest, it, it, it was almost the, I jumped out of my seat when I got the email that I had gotten the grant. And it's awesome. 
it, I mean, it was the, it was such an important moment that I still hold on to. And with that money, I also got a mentor and an incredible, incredible man named Dr. Joe Labulio, a brilliant uh, dean of computer science and engineering at the North Carolina School of Science and Math during the time that I was there. And he and I would have a couple meetings and I would talk to him about my idea to kind of simplify the process that you go through at an optometrist. And it was some of the most infuriating but valuable hours that I would meet with him because we would work out the idea, but also poke holes in it. And as a first, well, I wouldn't say necessarily as a first time entrepreneur because I did some businesses when I was little, you know, your traditional selling door to door type things. Um, But they, like there were some days when I went to the, the school cafeteria and I took my food back to my dorm to work on my chemistry homework. And I was like, man, that, that meeting kind of made me feel a little bit, a little not encouraged about what I'm doing, but those meetings are more valuable than people telling me that, wow, this is an incredible idea because it's, it provides building blocks that you can build off of to make your idea better, to make it more sound. And from there, I was able to put together a minimum viable product for a prototype that I had made during the pan, like right before the start of the pandemic. And then when we were at home for a while, I don't do well with not being busy. (laughs) I, I'm a, I always like to have something going on. So I took advantage of my extra time being at home and found pitch competitions and resources to learn, to grow as an entrepreneur. And that's kind of how the North Carolina School of Science and Math um, during my junior year really impacted the prototyping process. Thinking on that though, like your junior year, you're 16, 17 years old, whatever it ends up being. Right. And you think about what a fragile time that is for a lot of people developmentally, right? Like you're, you're trying to grow up, you're trying to gain confidence, you're navigating uh, friendships and everything else around you. And you're going through these meetings in that developmental cycle where somebody's tearing down your baby, right? I mean, they're essentially telling you why your product isn't a good fit and they're doing it in an encouraging way, but how do you stay positive and confident through those conversations, right? That is a fantastic question. And I think that I've always, I I have to credit my parents a lot for this because they really encouraged a lot of resiliency in myself and my siblings growing up. My parents got for the holidays for us, a book that is titled lit and I have it on my bookshelf. It's titled, what can I do with a problem? And it shows how you can take a problem that somebody will approach you with. And it makes you feel weighed down and it makes you feel heavy and hopeless and how you just have to do some work and digging to find that there is in fact an opportunity there. So that's a great, 
you know, awesome. Okay. She's resilient, but how did I deal with it? Walking back to my dorm room in like cold weather, it's cloudy. Somebody just told me that this aspect of the product might not work out. In those moments, I was lucky to have a great network of people in my support system that I could connect with. My professor at Stanford University Online High School was able to speak with her. And of course, my support system of my family is incredible. But also a little bit of a non-traditional support system is a gentleman by the name of Guy Raz. And he produces a podcast called How I Built This, Wisdom from the Top, The Great Creators. And I am his biggest fan because, not because of the podcast he's created, but because of the conversations he's been able to have with all of these incredible entrepreneurs and hearing about people that have been through things that I've been through, it it made me realize that, hey, if they could do it, why can't I do it? And that was really important. Having Having these role models like Sarah Blakely of Spanx and even Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon, the episode of Jimmy Fallon is incredible. Uh, and having those stories to be able to listen to and know that what I'm going through is is incre- is is good, but it's not special to me. That feeling of, oh, what am I going to do? I'm not the only person that's had it. And I'm absolutely not the only person that will make it through it. So being able to lean back on those stories of people and of course, sending tons of cold emails to them, hoping to connect has been truly helpful and really meaningful in the early stages. Any success, any success with your cold emails yet? Are you still not, not yet, not yet. I'm still waiting to hear back um, from Jimmy Fallon. I actually just made a presentation on Sarah Blakely for one of my business courses for undergrad. So um, waiting to hear back from her. I'll, I'll keep you updated for sure. Yeah, no, I'm sure you will. Yeah. So um, pitch pitches back home during the pandemic, right? How did you find them? How did you how did you learn and grow through those pitch practices as you were, um, shoot, still navigating high school? Yeah. So it's a really unique situation that everybody went through the pandemic, and yeah. I think that it's a. I was lucky enough to have good Wi Fi at home, and I was able to enroll in this course called a dreamers academy and it was founded by this impressive guy named giovanni marcico and i was the only i was 17 and i was the only person i think under 30 in the course so it was on zoom we would have breakout rooms about how can we break down our own limits and in business, in life, and create a good structure if we want to found something, um, like build good teams. And at the end of it, at the end of this course, um, it culminated into a pitch competition. So my, uh, a, a 
my grandmother actually sent me the link to this course because she's <laughs> big on Facebook and saw it on Facebook. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I need some time to, I have time and I want to do this. So I enrolled in it and I knew the pitch competition thing was happening, but I was like, oh, I'll just do it for the course. And yeah. then last minute I created a pitch video because I thought, why not? Nobody's going to do it for me. I like, what, what do I have to lose? I already paid the course fee. I might as well. Yeah. So I, and I'd also, I love film. I love making videos and production. So making a one minute pitch video was such a fun little activity for me to do. Uh, I don't think my parents were very happy with all the duct tape that I used on the chairs to prop different cameras up. Yeah. But it worked. And I produced a one minute pitch video. And in this pitch competition, and it premiered in their like, online conference, there were like 10,000 people in attendance. And there were 10 finalist videos. And I was the 10th finalist to be announced. So my family and I were all crowded over like my dad's desktop yeah. waiting. And then the ninth one was announced. And I'm like, oh, guys, it's okay. It was, it was still fun to make. And then I was the 10th one. And so then during the day of the conference, Bob Iger went on to speak before me. <laughs> so he warmed. No, he went on after me. Okay. So I was the I was the warm up for yeah. him. <laughs> Uh, so I, they announced it live because the audience voted on their favorite top 10 video to win the $50,000. And I guess mine got the most votes, which again, going back to that initial time when I got that $550, it was so valuable to me that other people saw my idea and saw my vision and that I was able to communicate it well. And they thought, Hey, I think that what she's doing deserves to be in the world. And that was, that was more than at the time, more than any, any, well, I wouldn't say any amount of funding yeah. that was, that was incredibly valuable to me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So what a um what a cool validation moment, right? So I mean you're getting validation along the way. I mean, you're getting kind of pushed aside from time to time, I would imagine. Well, but like big validation moments like that are so helpful to keep pushing you forward. And what next in the world for most people is continuing to go on to college and university and pursue further education. And you've got that, but you're also at the same time, you know, dual tracking, you've got this thing running alongside of you called a business. So how do you view, how do you view and tackle the application process, going to school, et cetera, et cetera, right? I have always wanted to go to university. It's been, I think that it's a beautiful time and it's a fantastic opportunity to grow into myself and make connections. So the idea of not pursuing university, at least taking a gap year, was definitely in the cards for me. But taking into account that my senior year was right around when everything started to go back to normal, quote unquote normal, 
So I wanted to go to university. I wanted to be a freshman. I wanted to meet people, have hard classes, have fun classes, the whole shebang. And uh, the application process, I knew that I wanted to stay on the East Coast for undergrad. And I knew that UNC Chapel Hill had an incredible business program. So I applied to around seven schools and I was accepted to six of them out of the seven. And I, Chapel Hill made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And I was able to come here on a full ride scholarship called the Wayland H. Cato Scholarship as an assured admission scholar to the business school. So how it works in undergrad is that you have to apply for the undergraduate business program and you're not guaranteed to be accepted during your sophomore year. And they have a group of about 50 people who are selected out of high school to start business school classes during their freshman year. So I, it was a really difficult decision because I had also received the Park Scholarship at NC State and this opportunity at Chapel Hill. And while the park was absolutely incredible, and I think it was was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make, the Chapel Hill had a little bit more in terms of business opportunities. And the only real thing that I'd ruled out that I didn't want to study was marine biology. I knew I did not want to be a marine biologist. And I saw Chapel Hill, based on their course offerings, as the best opportunity for me to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I decided to go to Chapel Hill. Plus, it was a lot easier moving into Chapel Hill because my sisters were also at Chapel Hill. So my parents didn't have to have a closet half of red, half of Carolina blue, um, and really only had to make one drive up to Chapel Hill from home. And from there, I was able to find at Chapel Hill an incredible network of advisors, of mentors, and opportunities to grow as an entrepreneur and realize that my startup is what I want to do. So let's um let's dive in and talk a little bit more about the startup then, right? Like mm-hmm. as it's as it is now. So where are you in? So you developed a prototype, I believe you said back in high, at school of um, science and math, right? Yes. So um, where are you now in terms of development? Right now, we are doing beta testing actually next week. So it's November 3rd. So we'll be doing beta testing the week of November 6th. And that will be testing out our kit for myopia, which is nearsightedness or not being able to see far away. And kind of going back to Apple, and you can't see it right now because it's an audio recording, but on my walls, I have patents that are framed one is of the iphone one of uh one is of eyeglasses patent from 1944 and another one is a patent from a four opter from 1909 and 
the reason why that's so important to me is that because those are old patents, you know, there have been iterations upon iterations built upon these hardware products, the iPhone, uh, obviously hardware and software, but that iPhone patent is from 2013 and the iPhone has had what, 14 versions and they've just been improved upon. So right now we're doing testing of the product because I want to make sure that the kit that that I put in front of people is absolutely seamless. The user experience is positive and you are likely to recommend it to a friend because you you finish it off being like, I think that this business truly provided value to me and I want to share it with others. So that's why we're doing beta testing right now. And from there, we'll be running a pilot program and then getting it onto market. So you're so you start your beta testing process next week. You'll get some feedback. You'll do user test, uh, uh, user experience testing, and all of those different things. And then you'll continue to roll through a pilot with with the beta project and even with the pilot project. Right? Who's the target market that you're looking for? from a from a user perspective or a, a buyer, I guess, if you will? So for beta testing, due to my status as a university student, our beta testers are not our ideal customers or at least our initial customers, but they are people who can testify to the ease of use of the product and also have an existing prescription to compare the accuracy to. Those are our beta testers. In terms of our ideal customer, they're gonna be people between the ages of 24 and 35, and people who are perhaps moving off of their parents' health insurance, who are beginning to enter that more independent stage of adult life, and who are also a little bit lower income. So thinking about people who want to get a shortcut to kind of get to a final solution that doesn't take them a long time. Um, and this past summer, I was able to work on the customer discovery aspect through NCIDEA's microgrant program, which was absolutely incredible. I love NCIDEA so much. What a great opportunity. And we were able, I was able to really hone in a little bit more on who those initial people, early adopters were going to be. Because a problem that I faced early on was when people would ask me that question, you just asked, who is your ideal customer? I wouldn't want to, I don't want to cut anybody out of yeah. my customer base. Everybody, so everybody can use it. I would say ages nine to 99 can yeah. use this product. And yes, that is the case. But I realized that I need to portion the serving size early on and not bite off more than I can chew early on, because then getting those feed that feedback from early adopters will make it better for those aged nine to 99 who I have no doubt that we will be serving in the coming years. 
Yeah. So you really interesting point that you mentioned a few minutes ago when you're talking about your beta testers in that you're going to look for them to, you know, obviously they're going to give you feedback, but they're also going to compare it against their existing subscription, right? Which is, I hadn't even really given in any consideration, but what's your degree of variability in the product that you're willing to accept, right? Like how, how far off can it be before it's good enough for the marketplace? So that is something that that's more of a regulatory question, but an answer that I can give you is something that I'm sure that anybody who's been to an optometrist has experienced when you go into the room and they place this machine in front of your eyes and they switch out the lenses and the kind person that is helping you or switching the lenses for you has the letters on the wall and they say, how does this one feel? And I'd be like, oh, that kind of hurts a little bit. And then they change it. And then they'd be like, okay, how does that look? And I'm like, okay, that feels a little better, but it's a little blurry. And then they might add a little bit more in terms of diopter power. So, and then when it would feel, it's kind of like a Goldilocks. Oh, that feels just right. So in terms of the variability from the initial beta testers prescription, it is not going to be the same as what they receive because the kit's capability right now only corrects sphere, which is a measurement on a prescription card and is measured in terms of diopters, which is for lens power. So we're just measuring that. We're not correcting for any sort of astigmatisms yet, but I'll be able to speak more on that after our beta testers and after doing some more um, comparisons on the accuracy. Now I will say, um, my friends and family that I have been able to forcibly sit down and put the product in front of them and tell them, hey, test this out and let me know. It has been around 85% of the time perfectly accurate. And that's with the prototype yeah. that is made out of a box that I bought at Michael's. <laughs> that's awesome. It's a crazy concept that I can get a box in my door and get really damn good vision. Um, so how, how did you come up with the idea? In terms of how the product works, it takes advantage of how the plastic material refracts light. So for myopia, which is nearsightedness, your lenses are thicker on the ends and thinner in the center. And that's just because that kind of material, that convexity or concavity, bends the light that enters into your eye and focuses it on the correct part of your eyeball. And that is what enables you to have clear vision because due to genetics, a misshapen eye, a misshapen cornea, our eyes don't naturally bend light as they should to focus it on the correct part of our eye. So the lenses themselves, I realized there is a material makeup of them that I can simplify and put into a kit 
And it works through a method of layerable optical quality lens stickers to kind of take advantage of what I learned in, okay, people with nearsightedness need to be thicker on the sides, thinner in the center. And people with farsightedness need to be thicker in the center and thinner on the ends. If that makes sense. No, it makes a hundred. I mean, to somebody that doesn't understand anything about optics, it makes a hundred percent sense. So as you think about the business, you're going to get pushback and you know this because we've already talked about it. You're going to get pushback of Sasha. This is an awesome idea. Put eyeglasses in the hands of those that maybe wouldn't be able to afford it. Otherwise it's an awesome nonprofit, right? Like why don't, why don't we make this a nonprofit business rather than a for-profit business? And then you can raise money as a charity and you can deliver glasses to poor people all over the world. I think that we, the initial leading with the initial goal of wise, which is to create accessible vision care for everybody, regardless of geographic status and financial status. I see that the best and most efficient route that WISE could take was being a for-profit company. Now, this is because being a for-profit company enables us to be able to sell direct to the consumer, also business to consumer, and also still enables us to have those community and government partnerships, that B2B sales, to get it to those more rural areas. And enabling us to build traction in terms of marketing and outreach as a for-profit, that will build a foundation that is strong, that is of a lot of data. Because to get this product onto shelves and into people's hands, I am dedicated to building strong evidence and strong support, which is why I'm doing beta testing next week in the middle of my midterms. And because I want people to know that what they're purchasing works. And because this kit is taking a process that can cost upwards of $600 without health insurance. And our current price point is $40. That's delivering an incredible amount of value to a customer at an incredibly decreased cost. So I think that there is huge profit potential in this. I know that there is huge profit potential in this. And having a company that is driven by good core values, that is driven by a sense of responsibility and purpose can go on to create bigger and better things. Now, that's not to say that being a non-for-profit, I couldn't affect the same things, but I think that there needs to be more companies that are for-profit in the space today that have that kind of B corporation idea behind it. And I think that that looking on a much larger scale, I think that that will start to affect the change that the world needs to see in terms of businesses, in terms of that kind of corporate status and corporate presence 
in the U.S. and internationally, because I think if one company makes it seem possible to be profitable and impactful, then I think that like what I had with the podcast, I heard that these other people had done this and made it through. I hope that one, it would be incredible if one little girl heard my story and thought, hey, you know what? I can maybe start something and make a living off of it and have it help people too. It's cheesy, but it's true. It's okay. Cheesy is not a horrible thing, Sasha. We'll take cheesy all the time, right? Okay, good. So it's cheesy is a heck of a lot better than all the than most of the alternatives that are out there. It's all been fun at this point in time, right? And when I say fun, it I don't mean to demean the fact that it hasn't been challenging as hell at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. But you're running through school and you're you're going to professors and you're tapping into their knowledge and you're knocking down doors with pitch competitions and everything else. Um, how do you take this thing to the next level? Right? Like it's, it's going to be a business and like, Oh shoot, you got to get it there. Um, so how do you view that? I view it as if, and we've spoken about this before, but I view it as if I'm opening a brand new bag of candy and I am watching a movie, let's say, and I'm so excited because I have this whole fresh bag of candy that I get to go through while I watch this movie. Like I'm not at the bottom. I don't have like one chip left, one piece of chocolate left. So before I get into actually what I see the future as, I want to preface it by saying I am so excited to dig through this bag that I have opened. And of course, like I might, to go along with this metaphor, I might pull a piece of candy out and like bite my tongue on it, or it might be sour or it might be bitter and then I'll deal with it and move on. So moving forward, after beta testing, after the pilot program, going to try to get those pre-sales. Because once I have that data and real evidence to fall back on, bringing it to places and also customers, those initial customers, will be a lot more appealing to them because I will have that evidence to show that people have used it. And I'm not saying that these beta testers are the first users because I have tested it. I wear glasses. My siblings have tested it. They wear glasses. My parents have, and they wear glasses. But of course, if you have testers all with the same last name with the data built off of it, I want to have a more varied pool. So after that pilot program, with those pre-sales, hoping to see how that goes, iterate as needed, and then really go larger scale in terms of direct-to-consumer and partnering with community organizations that would purchase a set amount of the kits to then distribute to their communities. Something that's really important to me moving forward is that, yes, I want this to be, I would like this to be in retail. I At the trade show where I actually met you at Converge South, I received some pushback on my desire to be in retail. 
because that's where you would see your traditional pair of readers sold at like a Walgreens or a Walmart. And I thought it was a good place to start. And I'm still deciding on that, still kind of researching. But after there's traction in terms of the direct-to-consumer sales and initial B2B opportunities, I really see this product as having such a huge impact on the countries where I did my research on. So as I was starting the business in high school, I was mentored by another incredible professor named Dr. David Cantrell, and I produced a research paper that delved into the economic and social impact of vision care. It was computational economic research, and it was done, I conducted it specifically on Liberia and India, looking at their education system, comparing it with their employment numbers, GDP, GDP per capita, and then contrasting that against how many optometrists they have per capita. And those places where people don't even know that they have that untapped potential because they don't have the pair of glasses that they need to see clearly is something where WISE will really come in to help them. So that's where we will be hopefully in about two years at the latest, having that traction to be able to make those international orders beyond the United States. And I mean, the thing that I think of whenever I'm in the trenches, not having a good day in terms of, you know, sending out 20 cold emails and not getting a single response. I think about a vision I had when I was younger of giving a kid a pair of glasses And that realization of, oh my gosh, there are actual leaves on the tree that I can see. Or I don't have to move closer to the board and away from my friends to take my notes in school. That is what I'm working towards. Because I think that that is truly what will affect an incredible amount of improvement. Because vision, the lack of access to vision care is the most overlooked global health problem that is facing our world today. Nobody talks about it because you can't see it. No pun intended. Um, So go ahead. I'll just say, so, I mean, you're, you're 21. You're extraordinarily 20. 20, Sorry. That's right. (laughs) You can't go have a drink after this. Um, I'll have one for you. It's okay. Um, So you're 20 years old, you're in school, you're incredibly ambitious, you're obviously very smart. Um, from a how do you knock down the next steps, right? Are you going to, um, uh, like what do you incubators or what? How, how do you seek to grow your network of folks that can help Sasha build this enterprise? I am naturally an extroverted person. So building that kind of network comes as a happy activity for me. I love meeting new people. I love talking to them. And being at a trade trade show like Converge South was a golden opportunity to do just that. 
So I met a number of investors and mentors. One of them specifically, I have calls with on the regular who works at a venture capital firm to work out a timeline of, okay, what do I need to be doing next? And that has been truly helpful in navigating this new area of water that I haven't navigated through yet. And building off of those network and connections is something that's really important. It's not always the comfortable thing to do to ask somebody, do you know anybody who could help me with this? But the hard truth is that nobody's going to ask that question for you. So having the courage to be honest and say, I don't know what a capital raising round looks like. Can you explain it to me? Can you get me into contact with somebody who might know more about it? Now I know a lot about raising capital, but I wouldn't have if I didn't know that and ask those questions. In terms of incubators that will hopefully be coming up, I applied to an accelerator program called Y Combinator, which is uh, an accelerator program based in the Bay Area and waiting to hear back from them. Again, we'll update you on that. And also, am, I am a finalist for the Forbes 30 under 30 list uh, in the healthcare category. That's not an incubator or an accelerator, but it is a platform that has already done a lot to connect me with people who are associated with that publication and beyond that, because I'm able to have that thing in common with them. And then it would also add some credibility because there's the flip side of being a 20-year-old college student founder where it's like, oh my gosh, she's a 20-year-old founder and she had this idea when she was little. But there's also the side of it where, oh, she's too young. She's going to fizzle out and end up getting a job in consulting, which isn't bad at all. Absolutely incredibly respectable and fantastic profession, but I know that it's not what I'm meant to do. I know that this is the fulfilling thing for me. And it's in terms of finding those competitions, just applied to be in the Olin's big idea pitch competition at um, in a university in St. Louis, which is a $50,000 pitch award. And that will be happening hopefully in March. And I was pitching at Converge South for six hours each day straight for two days, consumed not a good amount of caffeine, Yeah, probably not a healthy amount of caffeine for a 20 year old, but I so love doing that. So I'm looking for more competitions, more places where I can go and get in front of people and talk to them and hear what they have to say about my idea, good or bad. It's all valuable to me. So right now, just getting my name out there, applying to these competitions and seeing what happens. So we've come up on the end of our time, but before our end of our time, 
I'm going to ask you a question because I think it summarizes our conversation well. In our last, in our introductory call that we do with all of our founders, um, you told me you tried surfing this summer. Um, so um, talk about surfing and its relationship to founderhood. I am smiling so much that you asked me that question because if you couldn't tell from all the answers I've given to your questions, I'm a huge metaphor person. And I think that activities like surfing has a lot to say about what I'm going through. So I tried surfing for the first time this summer and it was the most gratifying and simply fun experience, but also very scary because you're paddling out there and you don't get to choose, oh, I think I'll do an easy wave today. It depends on the tides, the weather, and a number of other factors that are not within my control. Like entrepreneurship, there are a number of factors that I simply cannot control. And the only choice that I have is to forge onwards. So with surfing, I would paddle out and I, the instructors told us, cued us, okay, you're going to take this wave. And that was the, the first wave that I had. I, I think I swallowed, I felt like I swallowed the whole ocean. Um, and I absolutely fell off my board. I was able to stand up, but then I quickly fell off. But after I did that, I got right out of the water. I was, I had to get my bearings again. And then I swam back out and I got another wave and I wiped out again. And then I swam out again. And then I tried another one and I got up on my knees and I rode to shore and it was a little smoother. And then I tried again. So me having the willingness and also confidence in myself that has not been easy to build is instrumental in not only me being willing to try again and get up after I failed, but also be determined to find a lot of joy in the process. Because if you can't find joy in the process, then what are you doing? I'm not in a surfing competition. I'm not looking to get a first place medal. I'm looking to get better. I'm looking to build what I can do and show myself that I can at least try. So with entrepreneurship, there's going to be waves that are going to hit me, that have hit me, that are going to, you know, push me under the water. And it's surfing that I think of when that happens, because it's nobody judges you by how you fall. People judge you on whether you get up and try again. Again, cheesy, but I think very applicable to what I'm doing and what hopefully a lot of listeners might be going through right now as well. Yeah, no, so I mean, it's a great way to end it. Exactly right. Um, and you'll certainly have a number of folks uh, pulling for you 
as you say, as you inevitably fall, um, there'll be a boatload of people around here that will be pulling for you to get back up and waiting for that to happen. So um, a great story, a great company. Um, and hearing you talk about it was awesome. So thanks so much for sharing your Friday afternoon at university with us today. Oh, it was an absolute joy to talk to you again. And thank you for the opportunity to share wise. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sasha. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We visit as owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.